0: Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you.
1: Thank you for listening to this Heritage Foundation event. Every day, the Heritage Foundation holds important events with respected and influential leaders and policy experts on today's most important issues. Our events are part of our mission to formulate and promote conservative public policies based on the principles of free enterprise, limited government, individual freedom, traditional American values, and strong national defense. We hope you enjoy the program.
2: Good afternoon, welcome to the Heritage Foundation and our Lewis Lehrman Auditorium. We, of course, welcome those who join us on our heritage.org website on all of these occasions. For our guests here in-house, we would ask that courtesy to see that our mobile devices have been silenced or turned off. And, of course, for those watching online, you're welcome to send questions or comments at any time simply emailing speaker at heritage.org. And we will, of course, post today's program on the Heritage homepage for everyone's future reference as well. Just when you think no one else can write a book about Ronald Reagan that hasn't already been written, we have another one. I'm so glad that Peggy Grande has decided to send give us a glimpse into the president after he left the White House. She served as his executive assistant from 1989 to 1999, on top of that big tower in LA, I believe, that some of you may have seen in the movie Die Hard, but didn't necessarily know it was the same building. Uh, We're pleased that she could be with us today, and of course, at Heritage Foundation, Ronald Reagan has a very special place in our hearts, and we look forward to her sharing her comments with us. Following Craig uh, Shirley will be joining us for a discussion. Craig, of course, now is a noted historian and biographer of Ronald Reagan. His second career in his life, and we look forward to that presentation too. Peggy?
1: Well, thank you. What an honor and a privilege to be here today. Thank you for the nice welcome and introduction. Thank you, Mr. Meese, for coming out today. We ran into each other in LA recently, and it's such an honor to have you here. If anybody knows Ronald Reagan, you do. And I hope that I do him honor today um, in the things that I have to share. And you're right, there are a lot of books written about Ronald Reagan a noted biographer right here, so I'll have to make sure that I get my details just right. Um, But I'm happy to share my unique perspective because I had the opportunity of a lifetime to work for President Ronald Reagan post-presidency. So after he left the White House, what were those years like? And that's what my book covers, and it's called The President Will See You Now. Um, And it looks not at the policies of this man or even his presidency, but really the character of the man, who he was when he thought nobody was watching. But as his executive assistant, I was always watching. Okay. And so um, my, my book is really a story of what I saw behind the scenes when the cameras weren't rolling, what a unique vantage point I had. So I'm assuming there's definitely a few of you in the room who have met Ronald Reagan. A few? All right. For those of you who haven't, um, I wanted to introduce him to you in the way that I met him for the very first time. Now, you will hear it's a little bit embarrassing, but it's already in print. So I've gotten over the sheer horror of telling this story. And after you hear our first meeting, you may be surprised that there was a second. But I wanted to introduce him to you the way that I met him for the very first time. So I had gone in for an interview in the office. I was always that nerdy little kid that loved presidents and politics and government and the White House. And that may be normal if you grew up here in the Beltway around Washington, but I grew up in Southern California. And so Washington DC was might as well have been a million miles away, but it was something I was always captivated by and fascinated by. Um, and back in the day, really, when young women, little girls especially, Politics wasn't something that was even on their radar. So my parents, while very encouraging, kind of pushed me out the door and said, good luck, go do whatever you're going to do. Well, I was raised by a father who taught me to believe that somebody's got to have the job you want, and it might as well be you. So I was in college, I was a communications major, the great communicator was in the White House, and so when Ronald Reagan left office and returned to Los Angeles, he was the perfect convergence of everything that I loved and admired and respected. So I took a chance, I wrote a letter, old school letter on a typewriter to the office of Ronald Reagan, sent it off really expecting never to even hear back from them. Was surprised a few weeks later when my phone rang and invited me in for an interview. I had never been exposed to politics or to political leaders, and so I was needlessly terrified going up there. But I thought, if I only got a chance to even step foot into the president's office, what an incredible story that would make. So the interview went pretty well. And at the end, I was feeling fairly good about things and starting to kind of relax. You know how it goes at the end of an interview. And in, in LA, we have these parking garages where you have to pay a lot of money to park for a very short period of time. And so as I'm sitting in the lobby waiting to be escorted out, I'm kind of panicking and in my mind thinking, I don't know if I have enough cash to get my car out of the parking lot, but we'll cross that bridge when it comes to it. But thankfully, she said, have a seat. I'll be right back um, and bring you some parking validations. So here's what happened. Waiting for her in the lobby felt almost like a dream state. It was so foreign to anything I had ever done or experienced, yet somehow felt strangely familiar, as if this was all meant to be. The door nearest me suddenly swung open, and four Secret Service agents in suits and ties with earpieces, radios, and with guns holstered under their coats, walked hurriedly toward me. Did they know who I was? Did they know what I was doing there? Were they going to arrest me or shoot me? And then, behind the lead agent, I saw two older gentlemen in golf attire. Wait, was it? Could it possibly be? It was President Ronald Reagan and his golf buddy, Walter Annenberg. In all of my interview prep and planning, I don't know why it never occurred to me that I might actually meet President Reagan, and I didn't know what to do, and I kind of panicked, so I thought about what I would do if the flag were passing by. So I stood up straight, placing my hand over my heart, staring nobly off into the distance, not even looking at the president. I am certain I looked completely ridiculous. (laughs) But typical Ronald Reagan, instead of walking past me, he walked right toward me. He looked me in the eye, extended his hand, and I introduced myself to him. Well, hello, Peggy. It's nice to meet you, said the 40th president of the United States of America. I had imagined him as a ten-foot-tall giant. After all, he had been a movie star, a governor, and president of the United States. He had tackled communism head-on, fixed the domestic economy, and solved many of the world's problems. Yet here he was, an ordinary man, just over six feet tall, his hair and pictures appeared jet black, but up close I saw touches of gray, evidence of his 78 years. He was ruddy and rosy-cheeked, full of life, happiness, and vitality. And his smile was more asymmetrical than I had ever noticed in photographs, and it was perfect in its imperfect way. And those eyes, a wonderful, bright true blue and carrying so much joy. He was gone as quickly as he appeared, taking all the people, the energy, and the aura of power and importance with him. The office was suddenly eerily still. Selena, the woman who had interviewed me, then walked through the same door, grinning ear to ear, having witnessed my salute. It's pretty incredible meeting him for the first time, isn't it? You should have warned me, I said, still trembling inside. No, it's much better this way. And though I felt I had horribly embarrassed myself, I had to agree. She then handed me the parking validation stickers and said I was going to wait until tomorrow to call you and leave you hanging in suspense for at least a little while, but I already know that we want you to start working with us. So can you start on Monday? Yes, I could. So I held it all together until I was outside the building. I didn't know whether to shout for joy, drop to my knees in prayers of Thanksgiving. I was so overwhelmed by all that had just happened, I started laughing out loud. The preposterousness of it all, me, him, this office, Fox Plaza, Avenue of the Stars, we had met, he shook my hand, and now I work for him? I had no idea what Monday would hold, but I knew with confidence my life would never be the same after that day, and in fact, it had already changed. So That's your introduction to President Reagan. If you hadn't had a chance to meet him in person, I hope you feel like you have met him now. So I had the opportunity of a lifetime to have a front row seat to history. I started working for Ronald Reagan in 1989. I started as an intern. I thought I would be there for a very short period of time. After that, after my internship concluded, I was hired to work full time for the chief of staff as his executive assistant. I served in that capacity for a few years until Ronald Reagan's longtime executive assistant he had had since before he was governor retired. And they asked me to take that role. Certainly not something you say no to, although I was six months pregnant with my first baby and trying to figure out how I was going to navigate and juggle that life together. but what an incredible window into this amazing man and how wonderful to see him behind the scenes when the cameras weren't rolling, when he thought nobody was watching. My job ran the spectrum. Um, In the White House, he had all kinds of people helping him out. And in the post-presidency office, there were just a handful of us. So everything from dealing with the president's schedule, his meetings, his appointments, um, making sure he had cash in his pocket if he wanted to get his hair cut, interfacing with Buckingham Palace or the White House, making sure he had toothpaste in his bathroom if he wanted to brush his teeth. So anything and everything, as an executive assistant, always does. That was the scope of my job. And how wonderful to see Ronald Reagan in situations where it was really just the two of us or just a handful of us. And Ronald Reagan was one of those few people that, regardless of the pedestal you had put him on, a lot of people admired him from afar. A lot of times we admire people from afar, and you meet them in person, and unfortunately, sometimes they're a little disappointing. Ronald Reagan was one of the few people that, regardless of how you admired him from afar, When you met him in person, he was always even more charming, more wonderful and gracious and warm in person than you had ever even imagined. Looking back on my years with President Reagan, it's ironic because I thought that going back and writing a book, I would remember all the sensational star-studded black tie events But what I really treasure when I was looking back on those years are if you could call them ordinary days in the office and where this unlikely pair, a woman in her 20s and a gentleman in his 80s found an unlikely partnership of getting along well, navigating through the complexities of his day and really finding a lot of accomplishment. And a lot of joy, and what a pleasure it was. How an ordinary girl wound up in intersecting paths of life with an extraordinary man just was something that isn't only an America story. Of course, there were extraordinary days, um, witnessing historic signatures, traveling private aircraft. It completely ruined and spoiled me. Here I am in my 20s, flying private aircraft, driving in Secret Service-driven motorcades. Um, I told my husband I will never have another better job because I've already worked for the best boss in the world. One of my roles that I truly enjoyed was being behind the lens of the camera. So Ronald Reagan, as we know, always takes great pictures. He made me look like a really good photographer, even though I wasn't. He always took great pictures, and in fact, the cover um, photo of my book. Happened one day, I walked into his office, and it was as if the lighting was just perfectly lit like a studio, and he always looked very pleasant and handsome, but there was something about this day that was kind of magical, and so I walked in and was just so struck by the moment, and I said, Mr. President, you look especially handsome today. Do you mind if I take your picture? Well, all right. (laughs) So I went and grabbed the camera, snapped one photo on an old film camera, um, never imagining that it would wind up being the cover of a book someday. But I think it captures him so well in those post-presidency years, warm and welcoming, as if he's sitting at his desk just waiting to see you now. So even behind the lens was a great opportunity to have a front row seat to private meetings. I don't know if you've ever thought about how we get photographs of private meetings. When everybody leaves the room, the photographer gets to stay. So I got to be the ultimate fly on the wall for some amazing meetings. Um, People like Lady Margaret Thatcher. Here we are um, before a black tie event. President Reagan is showing her and Mrs. Reagan through his presidential museum. Then I also got to capture moments like this after an event. The ladies have their shoes kicked off and their stocking feet, and if you can see the president's face, he's kind of got his eyes rolled in the back of his head as if to say, stop talking so we can go home. (laughs) And I loved capturing these people in these just very real moments. I learned so much about diplomacy. And I guess as a young person, I thought diplomacy was something that was completely handled by the State Department. (laughs) You had to have a degree in diplomacy in order to be involved in it. But diplomacy, Ronald Reagan's way, completely changed my idea of what diplomacy truly is. And it's not about rhetoric. It's about relationships. And it's not political. It's very personal. Post-presidency, the parade of people that came from around the world to see Ronald Reagan was remarkable. And they came not because they had to for protocol or diplomatic reasons. They came because they wanted to. They had a relationship that had been started with President Reagan while he was president, some even before then, that they wanted to continue. And so diplomacy looked a lot like relationships. So people came from all around the world, people like Gorbachev. Prime Minister Nakasone from Japan, Chancellor Helmut Kohl from Germany, President Lech Walesa from Poland, um, Prime Minister and Mrs. Brian Mulroney from Canada came to continue the relationship that they had with President Reagan. Even Mother Teresa came all the way from Calcutta, India for a very special visit in the President's office. Ronald Reagan was a man of authenticity here in DC. Of course, we think of the pomp and circumstances of him being president, but I got to see him up at the ranch when he was wearing his blue jeans and his belt buckle, and we saw a man that was equally comfortable in both situations. Um, I don't know if you've seen his ranch or been up to his ranch or heard stories about it, but here's a picture of the house. It's a very humble place. It's not a palatial presidential retreat like you would think of. And he loved going up there. He loved taking people up there with him and was always very proud to show it off even though it really wasn't a showy place. As Mr. Meese knows, you were just there yesterday, you said. Amazing, covered all those miles, and he's still here today. But Ronald Reagan did love that place. He was very proud of it, loved taking people up there. Here he is with Lady Margaret Thatcher. Um, The Reagans, of course, are dressed for the ranch. I don't think that Margaret Thatcher owns any ranch attire, so that was about as dressed down as she got that day. Prime Minister Brian Mulrooney, of course, um, was a little more casual, ready to have fun, bounce around in the back of the Secret Service suburban, um, all around the ranch. But how wonderful to see these two men interacting just like good friends all around the ranch. And of course, the president used to love to get behind the wheel of his Jeep. It was a little bit terrifying. You wanted to get off the road when he was behind the wheel because this man had not driven for eight years. And here he is driving his Jeep. He looks thrilled. His Secret Service agent behind him looks um, understandably terrified. That is Gorbachev in the white um, cowboy hat riding shotgun next to him. (laughs) And then the interpreter in the back. But he loved that ranch. That's truly where his heart was and where he loved to take people and show off. So one very interesting assignment I got over the course of the years from the president was that when Gorbachev was going to be visiting the ranch, President Reagan asked me if I would find a cowboy hat that he could give to President Gorbachev. Well, that sounded straightforward and simple enough. I soon realized that I didn't know what size hat Gorbachev wore. And with a cowboy hat, you cannot get that wrong. It's either too small and it perches too high, or it's too big and it perches too low, and we couldn't risk that. And so it turned into basically a worldwide quest, trying to figure out what size Gorbachev's head was. Um, And there were all kinds of jokes around the office. You know, it may be hard to find one in his size since he has such a big head. I don't know if they meant that figuratively or literally, he had just one time man of the year. Um, But regardless, I had to stay till 10 o'clock at night to call Moscow at 8 o'clock in the morning to try to find somebody who spoke enough English to understand. I sent faxes with drawings and questions and arrows, hoping and praying I could finally get this number. Well, finally, a number comes back to me, and it's 60-something, which is not a hat size. But then I realized, oh, it must be a Russian hat size, so if I can convert that to a Western hat size, now maybe we're in business. Pre-days of Google Translate, now you could probably do that at, you know, just a few keystrokes, but couldn't do it at the time. Finally got a conversion. Then in LA, where do you even find a cowboy hat? Texas, no problem. California, problem. Found a hat wrapped it up um, up at the ranch very very nervous as the gifts were being exchanged Gorbachev opens his hat puts it on his head and I was very pleased the hat fit perfectly Um, although my joy was short-lived because the next day Stetson called to say while they were glad it was featured so prominently did I know that Gorbachev had put the hat on backwards I'm not a cowgirl. I did not notice, but apparently the hat is on backwards. (laughs) By that point, it was out of my hands. So we think of Ronald Reagan as a president, but if we stop and remember, he came from very humble beginnings. Here was a man who was born in a wide spot in the middle of the road in central Illinois. He was born in the middle of the snowstorm and the middle of the Great Depression. His father was an alcoholic. His family was very poor. And if you look at the cards of life that he was dealt, you would really feel sorry for this young man and think, this poor kid never going to amount to anything. Well, thankfully for us, he was raised by a mother who raised him to believe that God has a plan for everyone, and seemingly random twists of fate are all part of his plan, and in the end, everything will work out for the best. And how grateful we are that he had a mother who taught him to believe that anything was possible, and that he wasn't limited by his circumstances. He saw his foundation there in the Midwest as not being something that he needed to overcome, What was the very foundation for all that he ultimately would become. And as much as we know him as the great communicator, I think we also knew him and remember him as the great optimist. There's a few people in the room who probably remember the 1970s, and if you'll recall, taxes were high, inflation was high, unemployment was high, and worst of all, American morale was very, very low. But Ronald Reagan took office, and on day one, he began using entirely different language, It's morning in America. There's a new dawn ahead. America's best days are yet ahead. The shining city on the hill, and we all get to be part of it. And in reality, on day one of Ronald Reagan's presidency, nothing was different. Taxes were still high. Inflation was still high. But he changed the game completely with the perception, the perception of a leader, of an optimist, creating an optimistic vision that people could believe in. And at the end of his presidency, when he was asked what he was most proud of, It wasn't the things that he accomplished. He said, the thing I'm most proud of is that I made the American people believe in themselves again. He got government out of the way and off the backs of the people and allowed great things to happen. And so much of that he did through optimism. He was a man of incredible humility, which is ironic for somebody who has so much power on the world stage. But he kept a sign on his desk that said there's no limit to what a man can do and where he can go so long as he doesn't mind who gets the credit. That wasn't just a sign on his desk. That was actually the way he lived his life and expected those of us who worked around him to live our lives too. You know, this humility showed itself in so many ways. He never had to say, oh, I'm a very humble man. (laughs) He demonstrated it in so many ways, from little things like reaching over. He would hold my elbow as we would go up and down stairs, which I always thought was especially sweet since I was in my 20s and he was in his 80s (laughs) and he was helping me. And there's one particular time I remember we were had brought a bunch of extra furniture into the president's office for a press conference. And at the end, one at a time I was carrying out these big heavy leather and wooden chairs. And on one of my trips back and forth, I felt like somebody was following me. So I turned around and sure enough, there's Ronald Reagan carrying one of the chairs. And so I stopped and I said, it's OK, Mr. President. I'll come back and carry that. And he put the chair down and he looks at me and he goes, what makes you think you can carry a chair any better than I can? <laughs> Okay, right this way, you know, that's just the type of person that he was. He couldn't stand to see people working around him without being a participant in it, and was a man of incredible humility. We know he had a great sense of humor. Um, He told lots of jokes and stories, but they were always very strategic. Sometimes it was to make a very important point. Sometimes it was to put people at ease. You can imagine when people came to the office how nervous they were to meet him. And in fact, it was funny because sometimes you'd have somebody who was very prominent and a very famous person that most people would be nervous to meet. And they would meet with me in the outer lobby and come up to me and kind of clutch my arm. Peggy, I'm so nervous. What do I say? What do I not say? What do I do? What do I not do? You know, they knew that out of everybody, you know, wherever they were on that pecking order, Ronald Reagan was always at the top. And um, Ronald Reagan just just use humor beautifully to diffuse a tense situation, to put people at ease, to make them feel warm and comfortable and welcome in his presence. He was a man of incredible respect. He had great respect for the office, um, regardless of your politics or your party. Um, he had respect for the office of the presidency. He was one who would look at somebody who was of a different ideology and say, you know, we may disagree on a hundred things but I bet we agree upon two or three things. So why don't we start talking about those and use those as a foundation for moving forward? Rather than highlighting our differences, why don't we highlight the things that we agree upon and use that to move forward? He had great respect for women. He talks about his mother as being the most important person in his early life. Of course, his love for Mrs. Reagan was so well-known, and that was something certainly we saw interacting with them every single day, their love for each other. Um, He had great respect for Mother Teresa, this little tiny woman who he considered to be a giant on the world stage from her platform of influence, all the people that she helped and inspired. And of course, Sandra J. O'Connor, he was very proud of having been the first president to put a woman on the Supreme Court and was always proud of the job she did and believed that she was not just the right woman for the job but was the right person for the job and was just a man of incredible respect for women. He used to tease Mrs. Reagan that there was another woman in his life and he would joke that that was Lady Liberty this was a man of incredible patriotism. Um, you would think of that and assume that in a president. But again, this was something I saw behind the scenes. This man literally bled red, white, and blue. We would have groups come in on special occasions, birthdays, um, special holidays, come in and perform for him or sing for him. And inevitably, what do they play for a president? Patriotic music. But I would see this man sitting there. And as this patriotic music was being played, you knew that he had heard all of these songs a 1,000 times. He would tap his toes in time. He would sing along every word to every verse, verses I didn't even know existed. He knew and knew the words to these. And sometimes he would stand out of respect. And every now and then I would look over and see his eyes misting over with tears as he sang of this country. He loved America. He loved its people and was so honored for the opportunity to have served it in the way that he did. He was a man of immense gratitude. Here he is receiving the Presidential Medal of Freedom from President Bush in the White House. And the bigger picture I love because I snapped that on the plane on the way home. So it's a long flight from Washington, D.C. back to Los Angeles. He had taken his coat off, but he left his medal on. There was a man who's received every award, every trophy, every gold sticker. He always wins, right, because he's the president. But that medal meant something to him, and he wore it all the way home. I do not know whether he slept in it or not, but uh, you know, I would have, that's amazing honor. But how wonderful that this man had incredible gratitude and realized the weight of that honor. The other thing I love about this photo is what is he doing in this picture? Can you tell? Thank you. He is writing his thank you notes. By the way, he had an assistant who would have been more than happy to do those for him the next day. But here is a man who is so disciplined and lived life with such a sense of gratitude that he was taking pen to paper that right that moment to say what he wanted to say, how and when he wanted to say it. And as much as I love this picture, it kind of curses me because I travel quite a bit. And so now every time I get on an airplane before I pull out a book or start up a movie or take a nap, I think of this picture and I pull out my note cards and I sit and I write my notes because I think if this man can do it, I certainly can do it. And what a great example of disciplined gratitude he exhibited throughout his life. This is something I treasure more than anything I received over the course of my 10 years working with President Reagan. And you can imagine over the course of the years, I received some incredible gifts from visiting heads of state, including a gold watch from the King of Jordan and all kinds of incredible things. I treasure nothing more than this very simple piece of paper. It's gold embossed at the top with a modified presidential seal. It says Ronald Reagan. It has a doodle of a cowboy. I like to think maybe it's even a self-portrait. And it says, Merry Christmas to Peggy, Nancy, and Ronald Reagan. Now, Ronald Reagan gave this to me for Christmas the first year I was his executive assistant. And when he gave it to me, he was a little apologetic and said, I really wanted to do more for you, but you know you do all my shopping. So I wasn't quite sure how I could do something for you without involving you. <laughs> Pre-drone delivery, pre-Google Prime, you know, Amazon Prime, any of that. So here was a man who got creative and took pen to paper and made me a Christmas gift. And there is nothing I treasure more than this. It was from his pen and from his heart and such an example of the gratitude he felt, the appreciation and the awareness he had for the people around him. The world knew him as so many things. I knew him as a man of extreme kindness, Um, This looks like a prom picture, but it actually was telling him that I had just gotten engaged to my husband, Greg, and so he was celebrating with us. Um, I actually got married and had three of my four children while I was working for President Reagan. He was very patient and understanding through all those years. He was there to welcome my first, my son, Taylor, and my second, my daughter, Courtney, and my third, my daughter, Paige, and my fourth, my daughter Jocelyn, at which point Mrs. Reagan literally grabbed me by the arm one day, dragged me into the outer hallway, and she said, Peggy, you know how this is happening, right? (laughs) Not a conversation I wanted to have with the former first lady or anybody, uh, but for and no more. But how wonderful for my children to grow up literally at the feet of these great people and how blessed I was to have them include us in their homes and in their lives. You can imagine how terrifying it was to bring little toddlers into their beautiful home, um, but they always felt so warm and welcome there. And what I appreciate about kids is they don't care what your title is. They don't care if you were the president. They don't care if you're important or you're wealthy. They don't care about any of that. Kids are very perceptive, and they know if you like them. And that's about as basic as it gets. And so my kids grew up knowing that Ronald and Nancy Reagan really liked and loved them. And they felt very welcome in their home, in their office, and as part of their lives. And in fact, Taylor, who's over on the far side, um, I've taught him better manners since then, but he jumped up on the desk because he said he wanted to give the president a real hug, not a leg hug, because you know, toddlers come about knee high. Um, So he does not jump up on desks anymore. But um, I just thought that was such a sweet expression of, he wanted to give that man a real hug. Um, And of course, President Reagan looks delighted that he did so. My husband got to get in on the fun as well. Um, As the president's friends got older, a lot of them didn't play golf anymore or went to the desert for the weekend. So every now and then on Friday afternoon, uh, Mrs. Reagan would call and ask for Greg and ask if he could please be Ronnie's fourth the next day. So my husband, being very you know a little sarcastic that he is, he'd say, "Honey, you know I really was looking forward to mowing the lawn tomorrow and that honey do list of chores. I just couldn't wait to like get started and go down, but duty calls." I must serve my country. I must go play golf with the president. So he got to play golf with President Reagan many, many times over the president's last final years of his life and what an incredible experience that was and how fun the stories he would come back with, which were very different sometimes than the stories that the president would tell around the office with women present. And so I would always say, he said that. (laughs) So there's some fun golf stories um, in the book as well. And I'd say, let me get this straight. So I work all week long and then you go play on the weekends. Yep, that's about right. (laughs) And really everything I ever need to know about how to lead and how to live, I learned from this great man. In so many ways, I feel like I grew up with him. Um, He taught me everything, not by a list, but just by who he was. And looking back on those years, I would say the biggest takeaway I have is that your legacy is not something that's written after you're gone. It's something that's written with every day of your life. And so we don't remember Ronald Reagan because he's gone, we remember him for how he lived. And what a great reminder to all of us that we should all lead and live as if our legacy depends upon it, because it does. You know, Ronald Reagan's legacy was on display every single day. I got to see it behind the scenes um, in his interactions with people who came to the office, everything from a little boy with Asperger's syndrome, who had memorized every single fact about Ronald Reagan, came to the office and kind of quizzed the president on his own life story. There were moments when I got to witness a war hero that had been shot down behind enemy lines, who had survived by eating bugs and leaves until he was rescued. President Reagan brought him in and paid a special honor to him. And at the end of that meeting, it was so beautiful because this man who was a hero who was being honored by President Reagan that day said, Mr. President, I know you're no longer the commander in chief, but I feel like I would like to salute you. Would that be all right? And President Reagan looked back at this war hero and said, I know I'm no longer the commander in chief, but I'd like to salute you back. And so to see these two men facing each other, saluting each other, and this beautiful sign of respect are one of the many moments that was Ronald Reagan writing his legacy while he was still alive. There's one moment, though, that stands out above every moment in the office, and I don't remember the exact date. I don't even remember this woman's name, but I will never forget this moment. She was a very tiny, stooped, elderly Romanian woman. And she had requested an appointment with President Reagan. We brought her into the office. She took one look at Ronald Reagan, and she dropped to his feet, and she started sobbing and kissing his feet. And so Ronald Reagan, we kind of made eye contact, and it was this very uncomfortable but beautiful moment. He reached down and grabbed her hands and brought her up to stand. And with tears streaming down her face and her very broken English, she looked up at him. And she thanked him for freeing her, for freeing her family, and for freeing her people from oppression. What a beautiful moment that somehow this woman from Romania had connected the dots of her freedom back to Ronald Reagan. And not only a beautiful moment for this moment, but I thought of all the people around the world who, if they had had the same opportunity, To walk in to see Ronald Reagan would have dropped to their feet and thanked him in the same beautiful way. His legacy was on display every day behind the scenes. And of course, when we walked out into public, you could see that this man was so beloved and so admired by people far and wide. And of course, we know uh, when he passed away, we saw the outpouring of affection and respect from across the nation, around the globe, for a man that most people had never even met personally. People took an entire day off work to go wait in line for hours to walk past his flag-draped casket. People took hours out of their day to go stand on the hillside to bring flowers, to bring signs, to bring flags, just to watch his motorcade procession go by. These people loved Ronald Reagan because they knew that they had meant something to him. They had felt heard by him, admired by him, appreciated by him, and they loved him for it. You know, there's so many things we love about Ronald Reagan, but I think that most of all, we loved ourselves and we loved America when he was president, and that's what makes us miss him maybe more than ever. And I don't think we as a nation want to get over Ronald Reagan. I think we want to get back to him. There's so much he represented um, in the past that is still relevant and timely and beautiful for the future. So I'm going to take a few questions. I think Craig's going to come up and join me. And then I want to close with one passage from the book right at the very end. So,
2: yeah, and am In, in your book, you, of course, discuss the orange sweater, but I was looking at the pictures <laughs> to notice the picture of the president and Mrs. Reagan with the large box. She obviously didn't realize it was a clash of the plaids because <laughs> she was in check and he was in plaid. And then your embarrassing moment, I always remember a staff member at the White House who dressed in black most of the time, practicality. And she decided at one point they must think I'm the resident nun <laughs> because every time she'd cross paths with the president, she'd back up into the wall and God bless you, Mr. President. And That was about all she could get out. So so there that were funny, funny times too. That Craig? <laughs> Commentary?
0: First of all, I want to thank Peggy for writing this book. I think this is an important part of presidential history. Too often we, uh, we reduce presidents and lead us to one-dimensional figures and we just look at the politics of of the situation or the policy of it and we we forget that these are human beings uh who have real feelings and 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 thoughts and uh, emotions and problems and things like that it, it, there's been an arc to reagan's scholarship over the years and nobody knows better than ed is that <clears throat> when books were first being produced about ronald reagan they mostly were very harsh uh and uh very sometimes actually cruel uh and unfounded and they're mostly written by yes liberals inside washington establishmentarians who never understood reagan's appeal uh to the american people even the week of his death uh as, as peggy knows so well uh and i do less but is that there was a huge disconnect between the american people as she showed in the in the imagery there and it wasn't just out on the 101 highway out in california it was all across the country who the hundreds of thousands of people who uh who stood in line patiently to go into uh the the rotunda of the capital who stood there for 24 27 hours to, to just to pass by his his uh his uh, cortage and uh, and and make that trek around and the people who the outpouring of tempo tamp uh, tampico and eureka and others but so anyway my point is is that is that the, the 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 elites never understood Reagan but now it's there's been a a shift and i would say probably in the last 10 years which is good is, is that historians have looked at Reagan differently and begun to intellectualize him which is which is good is that there's a lot more uh good history being written about Ronald Reagan but in a way it's almost gone too far Toward uh, the intellectualization of Reagan and away from the fact that he's he was also a, a human being, uh, and so that's what makes Peggy's book so important. Is is that it reminds us that this was human being with 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 thoughts and emotions and and feelings and mistakes and funny stories and anecdotes and all those other things. And I think that is that you know is that presidents, all presidents are are. More or less important to American history, some obviously more than others, but it's those times when you don 't see them, some of the best history about presidents has been written like Peggy after uh, is that uh, after they were president of the United States is that is that it really because they put things in perspective, they look at things differently um, it, so I just want to say I, I, I applaud Peggy, I applaud her speech was terrific, it was wonderful uh, and i and I hope you write more. I really do. Do you
2: have a microphone? Any questions out of the audience? Come on guys, gotta know something. Back in the back, Adam. I wonder in your opinion, what was Reagan's greatest moment
1: during the period that you worked for him? Uh, looking back at all these interesting perspectives that, that you've already mentioned, uh, as a leading foreign leaders, uh, the American soldier, uh anything really special this would not be a moment that he would have said but i think when the berlin wall came down I mean, how special to be working for this man when that happened. And certainly he was not one to take the credit for that, but just to be in the presence of this man that you knew who had had such an influential part in that role. um, He certainly diffused the credit, you know, Margaret Thatcher, you know, the Pope, but he really would have said "It, it wasn't us, it was the Russian people. Once his impact is lasting and really made a difference in tangible ways in the lives of people all over the world.
0: I, I agree with Peggy. I think there's two probably two greatest moments. Well, there are lots, but probably the two. He went on Larry King that night. The, is there? Is, is there in Berlin tearing down the wall and hitting it with a sledgehammer and pickaxes and all this? And he went on Larry King that night, and and he said, because King asked him about it, he said Reagan said, "I always knew this moment would come. I just didn't think it would come as quickly as it did." Yeah. But I think the, I think his other greatest moment uh, is really the week of the funeral. Because it brought out uh, is is that it, it, the the whole life story of Ronald Reagan, and it forced people—not the American people—because they always had a high appreciation when he left office in January of 1989. His approval rating was 73 mm-hmm. percent among young people. It was in the it was in the high fifties, low sixties among voters under thirty. So the American people, but it but it showed the elites, the outpouring, the tremendous outpouring of hundreds of thousands of people. And it wasn't just people at the Rotunda or out in California, but it was people, every time, you know, somebody on CBS would, would say something critical, of Reagan, 100,000 callers would call CBS and say, knock it off, <laughs> <Yeah>. Cut, stop <laughs> it. it. And and, and you really saw it. There was an ebb and flow. I wrote a book about Reagan's uh, uh, post-presidency, also not as detailed as... Uh, is, is, it was more about the week of the funeral, but there was a, there was a, in the first couple of days is that the media was quite, quite harsh. Mm-hmm. And then you saw it kind of like did a 180 in a matter of minutes, a matter of hours, because you knew people were writing letters to these newspapers saying cut it out, stop the lies, stop the liberal attacks, you know, look at this man the whole total, you know, in total. And the same thing was with the networks is thats that is – that, by the end of the funeral, their coverage was quite different because mm-hmm. it was really took seven days from California to uh, Washington and back to California, is that by the end of the seven days, their coverage was quite different yeah. than it was at the beginning of the seven days because I think there was tremendous blowback on the part of the American people. Mm-hmm. I
1: think there was a realization, too, that – people appreciated him for more than just the politics and the policies. And so those may have divided people, but really you couldn't have met Ronald Reagan or been in his presence and not liked him personally. And so the week of the funeral, I think people wanted to celebrate the person that he was and the way that he had brought so many people together regardless of policies. Um, It's been interesting since the book came out, that's the thing that resonates the most. People want to talk about the civility, the kindness, the graciousness—the way he made us feel better about ourselves and better about America—not at all about the policies. Nobody, people aren't wanting to talk about that. It's we miss those moments of civility and a kinder day. Why
2: don't you tell them what a typical day in the office for him would be like? Because you've got a lot of photographs, but he didn't just do photo op, photo op, photo right. op. He was <laughs> I know. Very, makes it look like
1: I brought my kids to the office all the time. He a very
2: disciplined business person. Yes. In yeah,
1: he very much was and in fact um i i know there's so much curiosity and that's one of the reasons i wrote the book i i had never intended to write a book actually um when you serve as the executive assistant you have that proximity and i just i wasn't even sure if it was appropriate but i was actually speaking here in dc a couple years ago at the press club and was approached by a gentleman with the university of virginia who runs the presidential history project and he said something to me that kind of stuck in my brain and he said If there was a, he asked me if I was going to write a book and I said, I would never write a book. And he said, if there was a woman who sat outside Abraham Lincoln's office door every day for 10 years, don't you think we would want to know what she saw or learned or observed? And don't you think she would owe it to history to tell us? Well, I still wasn't going to write a book, but it definitely changed my perspective. And so I did have this different feeling of when he left office, people think of he left the White House, he had Alzheimer's, he died. Well, that was 15 years in there. And the first five years were very active, a lot of travel, a lot of speaking, entertaining world leaders. And so I wanted to show this robust post-presidency years that he had. And then really even five years in, when he writes the letter to the American people announcing that he has Alzheimer's, in a lot of ways, the world starts saying goodbye to him. But I was still saying good morning to him every day for the next five years. He continued to come to the office as best as he could, as long as he could. and so. What a great example of life lived to the full, you know, full throttle as long as he could. And so, you know, I do detail the specifics of the day, my day from starting three hours earlier with all these little kids, trying to get them packed and out the door and drive to this awful commute, get to work. I'm finally at my desk three hours after I've gotten up in the morning. Um, But his day, there was a lot of variety to it, and yet there was a lot of routine. He would come in. He would read, back in the day, the daily papers, (laughs) the weekly periodicals, Um, and then depending on the day, he had a busy slate of visitors. We would have staff meetings to talk about upcoming visits. We would work through upcoming remarks that he was going to make because he was, as you know, very hands-on with those. We may take a stump speech, but he would definitely um, add and always improve those, Um, meet with people. um, But a lot of it was spent in reading and writing and greeting people, planning um, how much how much
2: homework at the white house he used to think things back to the residents because he had many more duties yeah. to deal with did he take that much home during this period?
1: He did some, especially if he was planning for you know, an upcoming speech or something. He would take that and work through that. He always had his next day's schedule, which was very important, not only for him to be prepared and read through all his briefing papers for the next day, but it, be, it became the details of little mm-hmm. things, like if he was going straight to an evening event, he was very set on protocol, and so he would never wear brown shoes after 6 p.m. And so if he was going straight to an event, if he came in a light suit and was wearing brown shoes, which we know he loved the brown suits um, he would then have to reroute home so we would send it home saying dark suit only which meant he would wear black shoes which meant he didn't have to go home so it was always very strategic and just like planning his day but yeah he kept very very busy a lot of travel especially in those first years anything west of the mississippi he pretty much would go for a day trip anything east of the mississippi he'd maybe spend the night but yeah kept
2: very busy audience question I may call on somebody if I don't wait for the mic Adam we have one right over here the brown. I was just wondering if you could share any stories about um, any conflicts that he went through in his personal life and how he dealt with
1: that it's obviously easier to be graceful when you're going through the happy fun stuff but
2: yeah. if if you could share any stories about that that'd be great
1: Well, definitely. I mean, the most obvious crisis he faced during his post-presidency years was the diagnosis of Alzheimer's. And the way we saw him face that was very typical Ronald Reagan. You know, concerned about others, wanting to use something that was very personal and use it in a public way to help other people. You know, his diagnosis, he and Mrs. Reagan could have retreated to the ranch and probably hidden away and nobody would ever really know. The tabloids would speculate um, but instead, they chose to take something very private and make it public so that it would help other people. And one of the things I did want to capture in the book was you know, those final years, while they were sad in the sense that there was a decline, they remained very Reagan esque. He remained a man of faith and of patriotism and of optimism and in belief that America's story didn't end with him, but would continue to go on. And so, that, of course, shows when when all the pretense is stripped away, you're, you wind up with the essence of a man. And the man that I saw in those final years of his life was a beautiful patriot and a man of faith and a man of conviction still.
2: Kind of as John Barletta points out at the ranch toward the end when he was not there that often, John walked in one day and the president was reading something and John said, what are you reading, Mr. President? Oh, I don't know. I've pr- probably read it before. <laughs> You know, it's like, okay, just because I don't remember it, I'll reread it again. Yeah. <laughs> so he was very at ease. Yeah. Any other questions before we have your final quote that I'm anxious to hear? Anybody else? Adam? Why not? Um, I'll take a quick Because you were working uh, for Ronald Reagan in the 1990s when a lot of us aren't really seeing him as a public figure too much anymore. I was wondering if you had any anecdotes or anything that you think we might be surprised to hear in terms of things you might have said about day-to-day events based on being there in the 90s when he's not as publicly active.
1: Yeah. So he was very careful not to backseat drive the presidency, especially since George Bush became president after being his vice president. To be real careful, he was very mindful of the fact that only the person who sits in the Oval Office has all the information at their fingertips, and so to Pretend like you could make a better decision than that person was just not appropriate. So he was very careful about that. Although he did have a few pet projects and things that he still spoke out about. Um, he talked about the whole idea of gerrymandering, how it was very against the will of people to live and vote in in blocks that they chose. Um, he also talked about the 22nd Amendment, how he again thought that that was something that went against the will of the people. He grew up under FDR, who was elected four times. I don't think that meant that he wanted to run for office again, um, but was just always about um, people having the right to you know, vote and live and make the choices that they want to do. Um, and then interestingly enough, President Trump mentioned this recently, but he President Reagan spoke out about a, the line item veto. And how at the time, I think 20-something governors had that, but that was the power that the president didn't have. And he thought that that would go a long way in being able to attain a balanced budget if the power power of the pen um, also resided with the president to line item veto. So he continued to be involved in some of the conversations of the day while being very mindful not to step on the toes of... So yeah, I have one quick little closing story. I'm sure some of you have been out to the Reagan Library, and I wanted to end with a passage of about what it was like to go to the Reagan Library with Ronald Reagan himself. (laughs) And I thought you might enjoy this. So one particular visitor who loved going up to the library time and time again was President Reagan himself. Whether it was to showcase this beautiful historic facility to a friend or head of state or open a new exhibit, there was nothing like walking through the library with the president and seeing how people would respond to seeing him there. They had come to learn about him, never imagining they would ever meet him. It was a little like the movie Night at the Museum for some of the guests there, where history literally came to life. People responded in two distinct ways when they saw him. The first group, as I had done, took a step back as if meeting him, as if seeing him was enough from a distance, or perhaps even too much. The second group made a beeline for him, which drew a quick response from the Secret Service, putting their hand out to shake his. It was as if they had rehearsed this moment a thousand times and were fully prepared when their chance meeting occurred. There wasn't much in between, an unscientific, though interesting, observation of mine. Kids, I noticed, usually fell into the second category, bold and unafraid to approach him, they loved him, and he loved nothing more than being surrounded by a giggling group of schoolchildren at his library. I usually had to pull him along to keep him on schedule. The kids would all boo me, but the president would just laugh and point to me, saying, She says I need to go now. I better do what she says. One time we were getting ready to leave the library, and the sky was especially clear, and the sun was beginning to set. We saw a distant glimmer of the ocean in the distance, and it felt as if we were on top of the world and could see forever atop a steep slope down to distant homes and fields. The president paused for a moment and as we stood silently side by side, he looked over his left shoulder at his future memorial site, which was poorly disguised behind a few low hedges, the place where he and Mrs. Reagan would eventually be buried. He squared his body so that an angle perfectly matched that of the burial site and turned to me and said, I think I'll enjoy this view. He laughed to diffuse an otherwise awkward moment. And in spite of making me smile on the outside, Just the thought of the day when we would lay him to rest there pained me deeply. He, however, seemed unaffected by the joke, comfortable to the core in who he was and in the remarkable life he had been given. I savored this quiet, peaceful moment and lingered extra long that day to enjoy the incredible view, both the beautiful landscape in front of me and the iconic profile to my left, lit beautifully with the warm glow of the setting California sun. Thank you so much for having me, and thank you so much
2: for being here today. Thank you. I always like that picture because it's on my birthday. I like that one. Um, (laughs) We do have copies of the book available in the foyer, and I know that Peggy will be happy to sign them as well and talk with you all individually afterwards, too. Thank you again for your kind attention. You can sign it.